Hi, I'm Shane Safir. And I'm Alcine Mumby, and this is Street Data Pod, where we dream with you about next-generation schools that affirm, love, and value every learner. Here we have conversations about healing, hope, and listening at the margins. Friends, today we are joined by two amazing human beings that I have known for half of my life, Norma Gallegos and Christine de Leon, also known as Rocky Rivera. These are two beloved students from my first years in the classroom in the late 90s, not to age you all, but for real, that's a long time ago. (laughs) And I just could not be more thrilled and excited to be in conversation about some of the learning experiences that we had together, myself as a young teacher, Norma and Krish as my students, the ways we grew together, the things we learned, and what that all means today. So Rocky Rivera is a journalist, MC, and author from San Francisco. Rocky has released three albums with beat rock music, and her latest album, Rocky's Revenge, was created in collaboration with Women's Audio Mission. Rocky's music is a journey into the spirit of resistance, blending social justice, feminism with and West Coast hip-hop style. You can read her most recent writing on KQED and with her new column, Frisco Foodies. Norma Gallegos is currently an auto technician in San Francisco who was born and raised in the Excelsior District. This is where the stories in Chapter 5 of Street Data unfold. Norma is a former special education paraprofessional in San Francisco Unified. She has been a leader in the Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women and most recently has been involved in the reproductive justice movement. Welcome, Norma and Rocky. Welcome. What's up? <laughs> Thank you very much. Rocky, is there a song of yours that comes to mind when you think about the conversation we're about to have this morning? Yes, yes. There's a song that I wrote called Wake Up. Kind of a call to everyone to pay more attention to what's going on. Norma, I'm going to ask you this question, and this might embarrass Shane, but what is your favorite memory of Shane as a teacher? Shane was involved in creating the small school of June Jordan and the Excelsior, and I was one of her former students who also participated in saying we need a small school, and it just, there was something about the alternative, you know, knowing that these big schools should be given more funding, should be given more resources. But there's always an alternative to other different ways of teaching Mm. students. And at the time, I didn't understand my own neurodivergency, my undiagnosed ADHD. Girl. Or, you know, and a lot of different things. I was a C plus student, you know, and I just, I missed a lot of assignments. I'm sorry, Shane. You're hilarious. But honestly, like, I really thought that my track was going to be in the military and the course, the law academy and understanding where these laws come from, it just reared me right back into the direction that I felt like was a natural course. What dropped on my heart is that through that project and through having Shane and other people as teachers, you found your way back to your authentic self. Absolutely. I, I, you know, and at the time, I think it was so hard for Shane to be teaching all these uh, rascals and, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I was certainly just an oddball. I'm still am gutter punk, 
queer, you know, I think that, you know, a lot of us just, we understood that there was something to the word law and we didn't understand it until we went into the classroom and really started to have these discussions. And I do remember Krish being one of the students that picked up really quickly on how these systems of oppression or, or how things in our urban, you know, working class school at the time, and it still is, but you know, it just, how many strikes against Balboa there mm. was in our city and JROTC was the only avenue for me at least because I felt like that would give me structure my right. parents would think I wasn't like you know a scumbag and <laughs> you know I just felt like this might be an avenue for me to kind of think a little bit more and it certainly did because I think after three years of being in JROTC I went AWOL literally and I just said I don't want to be in this program I, I don't wow. like what it stands for yeah. there was a lot of humbling in the program listen Norma Gallegos I loved you then and I love you now. You were nothing of a rascal. You were such a delight to teach. You just exuded joy and energy and critical thinking. And it was amazing to have you in my class. So really, really, really fun to get to see you now thriving as a grown up. All right. We always like to start with story. We already did a little bit of story, but we're going to now put the mirror in front of the two of you. We're going to do a little like retrospective. Tell us a little bit about who you were as a high school student and who you are today how you identify, what matters to you. But first, who were you as a Balboa High School student in the late 90s and early 2000s? <laughs> well, Norma, I'm glad that you mentioned you were a rascal because I was also a rascal too. And at that point, it was my third high school in three years when I came to Balboa. So I was very disengaged from the learning process. I don't even know how I became Shane's TA in senior year because I must have needed some extra credit or something because <laughs> I still look back and apologize for all the assignments I never finished for all the days that I missed. And there was one particular day that I missed where everyone was voting for a representative of Law Academy to fly to Oregon for one day. And because I was absent that day, every single person in my class volunteered me <laughs> and so when I, I came that. to class the next day everybody was like hey we have a surprise for you Krish you're flying to Oregon with Shane during a school day because you weren't here yesterday and we voted you to be the best representative and I was just like all right free trip to Oregon I guess with my teacher so I'll go so it was a day trip and everything we got back before the day was over but it was just that's the kind of trust that we had with each other but also that's the kind mm -hmm. of relationship that we all had in that class was I think we were really yes. happy to kind of alley-oop it to each other to kind of Ooh. give each other the trust that we all understood the curriculum which is like how often does that happen as a high school kid that you have so much trust in your classmates right. and each other that <laughs> they'd vote you even when you were absent to be a representative so thank you Norma for saying that uh, <laughs> I, I took to it well because you know at that point I hadn't found a place that I belonged mm. to Educationally, socially, even moving to the Excelsior, that which I definitely claim as my home because that's really where I became who I was and who I am mm. now. So now, now I'm just a rapper who likes to integrate ethnic studies from SF State, which I learned I would not have been on that track if it wasn't for 
my teachers, they read my writing, especially Shane and Degia, and said, hey, I really, I really, I thought I was in trouble, you know? They're like, hey, meet me after school. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> God damn it, what did I do now? And then they were like, no, actually, this is a really good essay. Have you thought about pursuing education? Have you thought about pursuing a university instead of City College? Not that there's anything wrong with City College, but I, I thought every public school kid was destined to go to City College. And I wouldn't have even thought about going to state if it weren't for the encouragement of teachers like Safer and Degia. So I really think they set me on a path that led me to become the artist I am today, the journalist I am today, and the activist and rabble rouser that I am today. So you can thank my teachers for that at Bobo <laughs> High School. Girl, you were always a rabble rouser. That started right? <laughs> way back in the day. That's exactly. <laughs> exactly. Just pointing me in the right direction now. <laughs> I'm so glad. So two words just really stand out from listening to you, Krish, and just imprint on my heart today. One is trust and the other is belonging. And what I love about that is you didn't, you haven't actually talked about what we learned, the content, the standards, the assignments, all the things that, right, when we think about education, those are the first things we usually talk about. But you bring me back to that moment and to how really deep and reciprocal those relationships were. And I still believe that that's the foundation of learning like mm -hmm, it's so mm -hmm. marginalized in law schools and classrooms it's like the last thing people are worried about or thinking about but yeah so I can't wait to get into the teaching and learning pieces and see how those potentially kind of flowed from the connection well I can't watch the godfathers every Thanksgiving without thinking of Digia making us watch the godfather and making a <laughs> parallel to Machiavelli <laughs> for folks who are listening like who's Digia? we were partner teachers in the law academy we co-founded it I was teaching U.S. history and pre-law and Digia was teaching English and we integrated all the curriculum and for better or worse some of the students would just come to our three sections and not go to their other four classes <laughs> which a sign of a good teaching listen but that was like a big reason why we started June Jordan because we were like this is not really functional right we just have yeah. this pocket where young people want to come and engage but like the rest of their day is really rough so how do we create a system that feels this engaging and loving so let's go to Norma <laughs> who were you as a high school student you told us a little bit before and who are you today? Oh man, you know, I was thinking about high school and I've healed quite a lot and mm. I was outspoken, I was extroverted, I was hiding a lot of things and I don't want to cry, but okay. <laughs> I will if I have Tears to. are welcome um, here. And, you know, rest in peace to my father who passed away six years ago, but he was an alcoholic and domestic violence was in my home and we've since made our peace before he passed, but a lot of just feeling uh, destitute uh, poor working class. I, I think that was extremely grateful to, to have a home, but I think the environment growing up bilingual in San Francisco, Excelsior at the time wasn't as gentrified as it is now. And mm -hmm. I think just feeling like I wasn't worthy of love, worthy of, of a lot of different things. You know, this is why I, I had joined JRTC. This is why I had joined so many mm. different extracurricular activities because I did want to belong. And coming into the Law Academy, I think it just kind of more cemented, you know, where is this all coming from? And really understanding the roots of all of that. I just had an innate question to ask why. Why is it this way? Why is it that way? I also wasn't like my uh, Latine, Latinx peers. Mm. I think that a lot of them love the game culture or the mentality 
brutality of running the streets and all of that. But for me, it was like, why the fuck are you guys doing that? And like, mm. I got into other things, punk music, rock, and just being a different kind of weirdo. From that time period, I, I've always just had, again, the questioning of why these things happen. Why is it this way? And it's not just me. And I think from where I was at Bow, I couldn't have had a better education in terms of mm. street education. My class, Chris mentioned, you know, like was the first class out of many years at Balboa that had at least 15 students going to a university. And wow. I felt really left out because I didn't mm. I didn't get in. I didn't do my SAT or some shit like that. And I, I did end up at City College of San Francisco for 20 years. And I, <laughs> I did finally get my Associates of Science in Social and Behavioral Science and Auto Technician Science. Oh, so, so great. Love it. Um, Love it. So great. There always speaks the, the need for community college, you know, as a, a, yeah. a resort to, yeah, for sure. to help students who don't always catch on to things easier. Also being able to still live in San Francisco. I can, mm -hmm. I, a lot of classmates are no longer in San Francisco and it just, mm -hmm. um, yeah. it just feels like my ground zero here and mm. it's tough, <laughs> but I've thought a lot about Law Academy and, and how, you know, I was as a student and I don't mean to bring out my whole memoir, but like it just, <laughs> I just literally was crying and thinking about those times and days where I just still felt alone, but mm -hmm. I knew that this was a, a special group of people to be with and to learn from and hold dearly. resonates about your story from just the trauma and not feeling safe at home and then seeking belonging at school which like I feel like young people that are struggling with belonging show up in so many different ways like sometimes it's a rascal or gutter punk <laughs> as you said and sometimes it's the overachiever like it can look so many ways but I really connect with that and I want to double tap on your self-description as somebody who always asked why like that's what made it so beautiful to have you in the classroom like I don't remember that you didn't turn in assignments like it doesn't really matter to me I remember your voice and your passion and your inquiry and so much of what you shared Norma it brings me to this question of like how are we defining success in schools mm -hmm. like what are the measures that really matter and is it that is it that a student takes the SAT or goes immediately to four-year college right or for me the fact that you're in the trades and you're passionate about what you're doing is such a powerful indicator of quote-unquote success whatever that word means so I just love having you here and witnessing your growth and your brilliance and all the things all right so for folks who haven't read chapter five of street data the Balma project stands for Balboa High School where Norma and Chris attended and my first teaching job and then the MA of Balma is Marin Academy which was this is this extremely Tony, expensive, independent, quote unquote, private school in Marin County. And the reason that project came to be is because I met a teacher at Marin Academy in a summer training on project-based learning led by the still leading the field, Bob Lenz, for folks who know <laughs> Bob right. Lenz. And part of that week of um, teacher training was to hatch a project either on your own or collaboratively. And so Lisa Aristia, who was a teacher at MA, a black woman of Afro-Cuban descent, myself as a white woman teaching in an urban environment, came together and created this project where we were going to bring our young people together to investigate equity in education. And that became something that was featured in an hour-long KQED Emmy Award-winning documentary. And that's a whole other story how that happened. That was not something... 
was like completely emergent, organic, weird thing that brought that to be. And to put it in educational context, this was pre No Child Left Behind. And this was before, you know, like work-based learning and all these pathways. This is before we had like certified pathways of learning. We were just trying to meet kiddos where they were and make sure that they could feel a sense of belonging and also the intellectual rigor. I don't want that to be lost. super excited to ask this question of both of you all. So maybe we'll start with Rocky. What do you remember about the learning experience in Balma, right? So maybe you can share a moment that you'll never forget and how that moment changed you. This could be around the different components, the culminating exhibition, overnight retreat, any of the ways in which you were called to share your learning experience more globally. Sure. I think because it was pre those academic terms, I still don't know how to pronounce pedagogy. Is it pedagogy or pedagogy? Because I'm a phonetic speaker, but (laughs) well, I'm going to call it. I say pedagogy, but you could say pedagogy. Yeah, some people say pedagogy. I say tomato, 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 pedagogy, pedagogy. Well, let's just say (laughs) that was the first time I experienced pedagogy because we actually had seniors that were RTAs Mm. that helped us with our program. And that really has helped me develop lifelong friendships. I'm still friends with Eyelid and some of the other seniors that I might not have even really engaged with. And I felt like with the partnership between Degui and Safer, with the pedagogy, with the seniors aiding the juniors, it really set me off to, why do I love this class more than all my other classes? Why are we sitting in groups? You know, because I was the type of student that I talk so much that they moved me to different seats and then I would talk to the person next to me and they would move me again. So the fact that we had our own groups, we got to develop these relationships with not just with each other and the cool kids or the stoners or whoever. We we were all different in that class. So we all loved each other so much because that was the kind of class that it was. It was intentional pedagogy. And so Mm. when I went to college and I experienced that, that more teachers were doing that, I realized, why are there some classes where I really don't remember anybody? I don't even remember the teacher's name. I don't remember we learned but there's these other classes where it was so intentional that everybody got to know each other and really feel not just invested in our education but invested in each other's success to me that is the kind of environment that we need young especially black and brown folks of color in public school they need to have that To this day, I still remember every single person in that class. I still have fond memories. At the end of the day, when every, all the cool kids dropped out, I had nobody else to mm. sit with. That's when I joined the Mabuhai Club. That's when I came and just ended up sitting in class, eating my lunch there with Norma, with Gmo, with Rob and Alex. The cool kid had no more cool kids to hang out with at the end of the semester because they were all dropped out. And so mm, I, wow. I had to I had to find my own peers. And if it wasn't for Law Academy and it, yeah, it made me feel like oh hey when all my cool friends drop out eventually where Mm -hmm. am I where am I gonna go what you're making me think about is 
A, the pedagogy of conversation, allowing the students to talk, which is one of the principles. I don't know what you're calling them, Shane, but it's like the talk less for teachers, talk less. Oh, yes. That's what they're called in the book. Yeah, right? The talking less because the person who's talking is doing the learning. So I heard Mm -hmm. that your Balma allowed you to talk, to question, to have these deep conversations and to create community with your peers. It's weighing heavy on my heart because you have said several times times when all of your cool friends dropped out. And I think about if they had had a similar experience like you and Norma or the Mm. other kiddos in that project, where would they be? It's making me a little sad, right? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I had a I had a cap that said for you, mom, on my graduation cap, and half of us didn't even think we were gonna graduate. So by the time we got to the graduation ceremony and everybody, they were forcing everybody to take the decorations off of their hats and they didn't catch me. I had several, I still had it on my hat. It said for you, mom, and I had several of my classmates borrow my cap, hold mm. it up to their moms. Because we all at that point didn't even know whether or not we were going to graduate. So that was how difficult it was. It was not a 4.0 class. It was not a 4.0 type of school. And to to be able to engage people like me, people like Norma, who we had all of this latent curriculum around us that we wanted to make relevant to our lives, the things that we went through, the emotional isolation of being somebody who wanted to question their entire experience, to be able to have a place where we didn't have to put all of our issues out there, but we could talk about them indirectly through these curriculums that were brought up that were more than just about preparing us for test scores, preparing us to for the next stage. It was really talking about our lives. And I think that was the most important part, them listening to us, them encouraging us and sending us on our own individual paths, whatever that meant. May I call two students into the space with us that are on my heart right now? Yes, try, please. Try not to cry. So one is a student from my first year at Bow who was in my American democracy class. This is before the Law Academy when students were just going through six random periods that were totally disconnected from each other. And this young woman, we'll just use her first name, was named Samira. She was a straight-A student. Brilliant. We did the mock Congress, and I remember her writing bills. I think she was elected as like the senator pro tem or whatever in our mock Congress. And she stopped coming to school in the spring for weeks. And there was no mechanism. There was no way to figure out why. I remember asking the counselors and asking, you know, and everybody's like, I don't know. Like, there was no home visits. There was no wraparound, nothing. And it turned out that her, she and her mom lived alone and that they had become homeless and that she didn't have a place to shower. And so she just didn't want to come to school. And she ended up not being on the graduation rolls. And Samir wanted to be a geriatric doctor. That's what she wanted to do. And I just think about her so often, y'all, because I love that young woman. And like, we had a real connection and maybe she made you know maybe she went back and made it I really hope and pray that she made it but the ways that our institutions are built for so much Mm -hmm. anonymity and disconnection and to not have ways to catch and bring young people back in and I you know it it dawned on me and as as I was looking at your name Norma I had a Norma in my classroom it must have been my third or fourth year Norma wore a lot of red so you can assume what that meant this was in the South Bronx where you know (laughs) red meant a particular thing and Norma's dad was disabled and her older sister was in the military and this is like after 2000 and so her sister was deployed and as a girl in a a Latinx family she had the responsibility of caring for the children and her disabled father and so she would come to school maybe two or three days out of the week right and she loved school and I remember I was like 
Norma, what can we do to support you? She's like, Miss, I just want to learn and be at school. And so I would call her dad and be like, you know, Norma has some work to make up. She has to stay here until six o'clock. School was her refuge. It was her safe place where she could just be a kid and focus on learning as a 15 year old. And so I'm just sending you lots of love, Norma, if you're listening. Hopefully someone from Fannie Lou will be in contact with you. But when you create spaces like that for kiddos, they know where they want to be. And it's usually those external things that are like societal. We created the conditions for unhoused kiddos to not want to come to school because they don't feel like they have the resources. Or we created the conditions where Norma is like, I just need to not be a mom and a caretaker at 15. I just want to be a young person learning. So I feel your rage, Shane, because like we, we, we doing it. We are creating those systems that are failing children. But we can create the opposite too, right? We can create. We have. We have, we have, we know and how. we know how. Yeah. It is not easy, yeah. but as you like to say, we can do hard things, but it means that we're going to have to, you know, let go of some of the ways in which we perceive our role as adults, which right. is what you did. Right? You let go of the power of being a teacher, sage on the stage, and you handed that over to the young people because you believed in them and you knew they could. And they did. Norma, you want to give us a brief window into a moment you'll never forget from Balma? Balma, right? It's the bringing of the public school and the private school system and thrusting these two different cultural clash and everything. And I think, you know, just under capitalism, they're not going to want to have a flourishing, vibrant youth to do what they want and live say in that again, say that again. <laughs> do our thing but like instead we were just trying to either make us into automatons which was what Balboa was a factory in fact they took out trade schools from Balboa they had an automotive program in the 80s and that wasn't there my god that would have been fucking awesome but instead it was this pipeline into you know death or military or you know something that's easy for us in public school but Marin Academy was this if you had the money if you had the resource if you had the money yeah sure there were some scholarships for some of the students but that right there is already an, an indication of a society that says we are going to teach those who are going to get the best you know white collar jobs or they're going to be CEOs yeah. or they're going to be something that's going to help the ruling class stay in power and all of that and that's literally what that was was this oh my god we're going into Marine Academy and they have carpeted flooring and they got a smaller school and here we are we're just these scumbags oh. Oh, they had they had all sorts of they were basically like they have an iMac in the hallway so the kids can check their email. They leave their backpacks outside of the door. Nobody <laughs> steals their backpacks. That was the rumors. I'm sorry to interrupt normal, but I remember. No, it's so I remember you all. Your eyes were so big when you walked in there. You're like, how are they leaving their backpacks out? How are there no lockers, locks on the lockers? Like what the hell is going on? How do the students and teachers use the same bathroom and it's freaking clean? The new gymnasium, right? even though the whiteboards and you know, in my head it was just always like this is unfair. A lot of us, you know, we took advantage of it in the sense that, like, okay, we, we know that it's out here and we know that we we understand that there's a, a difference of income bracket or whatever. But at that point, it just felt like there was something bigger than all of this because that whole experience, the privilege, 
the privilege. <laughs> the privilege. Yeah, it was extreme and palpable. It, it further cemented in my mind that there is something more to all of this and yeah. nobody's at fault. Like, wow, you guys chose to really be yeah. poor and teach at Bell. <laughs> I'm going to do Solidarity. my best. Solidarity. Solidarity. <laughs> I'm going to come back and oh do better. God, I, I you guys are no, so funny. No, we, laugh, we laughed about it, but remember when they came and visited us? That was the funny part, is that then they got to come and visit us and see how we lived. Wow. <laughs> they sure did. They Dangerous sure did. minds, baby. Dang where, where is Michelle Pfeiffer wow. at? <laughs> Please tell me I was not reproducing that trope. I'm God. saying she was, she, was was she was trying to be you. She was trying to be you. Dangerous minds, white savior lady. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. They sure oh. did. Their, their eyes were wide too, walking around. They're like, there's ceiling tiles falling out of the yeah. ceiling up there and there's like no toilet seat like right says. but to norma's point it's like why are some kids worthy of one type of yeah. space and other kids are not like what does that even mean what does that even mean especially when you're talking about young people and you know what 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 a lot of folks didn't know was that i said that i was at three high schools in three years and the second high school i was at was in washington state and it was a public school, but it was very much a well-funded public school. Bunch of white kids. Everybody participated 100%. And that really set me off because I went from all public schools my whole life in California. And when I went to Washington State and experienced a different kind of public school that was actually invested in, that really yeah. was what showed me the difference. Not Marin yep. Academy, but going to another public school in another yep. state. And so when I went back to Balboa, which I did not want to go back to, I was afraid of being a dropout, just like my older sisters and siblings and my cousins. And, you know, the reputation that Bell had back then was really bad. I It was my third school that I wanted to go to. I didn't want to go there. I wanted to go to School of the Arts. I wanted to go to Lincoln. Mm. Didn't get accepted. It was too late. And so it was my last choice, but it was really mm. destiny at that point for me because to me, I look at that as, you know, a road that I might have been a very, very different person. Might have been my fourth school in four years. Who knows? But I stayed at mm. Bell and I graduated from Bell. And and I'm super proud of that because of that two-year program of Balma. So I really do think that it was not just a, that year or that semester. It was really a culminating experience in the last years of my high school, of my public school career, which was really impactful for me. That's actually a perfect segue to something that we want to ask you about, which is this idea of critical literacy. You know, as you described earlier, you were born a writer. I mean, when I saw your writing at 16, I was like, damn, this young woman has a voice. She knows what she wants to say. And she says it's sharp, clear and precise. And that is a gift, right? As somebody who's still Thank learning you. to write, <laughs> you had a gift. You and Tony Vai were like my, my writers, mm. <laughs> if, Tony, mm -hmm. if Tony's listening. So I want to ask you to, to talk to us about how this project and the Law Academy kind of helped you hone critical literacy skills, reading, writing, mm. speaking, and other skills within that domain that help you to dismantle the systems of oppression we're talking about. I will always remember the assignments that made me think, the comparisons, besides watching The Godfather and seeing all of it and be like, oh my God, we're allowed to watch this? Cool. <laughs> but like comparing the rules of The Godfather to Machiavelli's How to Be a Prince, mm. just trying to, trying to understand the language 
language of that, which was written so long ago, and then comparing it to the mafia or even comparing the transatlantic slave trade with prisons. That was mm-hmm. those assignments were the ones that really stood out to me because I'd never made those correlations before. So when I really got to dig into not just history, but how it reflects in modern day, it really helped me see that history is not something that happened a thousand years ago, 500 years ago, 100 years ago. Every young person in there was a product of the history of our immigration, the history of our contribution to this country, just by way of sitting in that classroom. And so connecting the present to the past through U.S. history and then being able to use my chops because I was an introvert. I did read a lot. I did have a diary that I wrote in a lot, which is where a lot of my writing came from. To be able to apply that skill in a manner that would allow me to use it now in the future as a journalist, as somebody who went to school for journalism, to really look at truth Mm. as important to speak through, but also to continue to bring up, especially now that media is in such a crazy place. We need media media literacy now. We need basic media literacy. And so even just going through the preparation of the critical literacy in high school, and then that sending me off to journalism school where it taught me how to read between the lines, how to see who was actually funding these news corporations. This is the kind Mm -hmm. of curriculum that young people need is they need to see the strings that are pulling them. They need to see beyond the smoke and mirrors, not just what's directly in front of them. So I believe that not just with the groundbreaking curriculum, the critical engagement, the pedagogy, the (laughs) (laughs) the volunteering of me when I was not in class people were making sure <laughs> that i learned even if i didn't want to learn oh my god or accountability I, yeah absolutely it's a different form of accountability right yes yes and you know people wanted me to rise to the occasion my teachers wanted me to rise to the occasion and we were able to both norma and i we were able to rise to the occasion because we knew that there was something else in this world that we could be good at instead of just trying to fit in or trying to just be a square peg in a circle and that rolling stone <laughs> And that Rolling Stone. Thanks for the shout out. Thanks for the shout yeah, out. Yeah, come on. You got to tell them what that is. Come on, humble brag. <laughs> well, yes, I did work at Rolling Stone for a little bit, but even they were a shadow of what they once were because San Francisco will never be as radical as it was in the 70s, which I wish mm. I was a part of. But I got mm, to bring yeah. that to Rolling Stone. I got to I got to go to Rolling Stone, work there and be like, y'all listen, capitalist pigs, too. OK, bye. Going home now. See you later. Good to know I was your diversity hire. Peace out. But, you know, but that, that's, that success, that success to me was not what I wanted. I didn't want that kind of success where I would be the only person ushering Correct. in the diversity. And there's a difference between affirmative action and diversity quotas. I learned that. We're just not here to play a role for you in these boardrooms, in these classrooms. We're not here to be your little brown puppets. We are here to really represent an experience in higher education in life to show our contribution is not just essential, but is the full picture, basically. Woo! Woo. I know, right? Woo! Deep breath. This is so good. 
So Norma, this question goes for you. We would love to hear from you as a former student to give some advice on what are some of the instructional moves that you would say really helped you to hone your voice, to hone your ability to be your authentic self, but through the classroom experience. There were several different methods, I think, that were employed. One of the projects was to talk about like a topic of, what was it? I was with my group and I immediately thought, Jerry Springer. So the opposing yes. sides or something like that, remember? It was I like, do. Uh, okay, I presented the topic or something and I said, you know, here's the opposing side, here's the other side, and they fought for a little bit. I just loved it because <laughs> the class, you know, they, they would chant Jerry Springer. And I, I just remembered like, that was a very interesting way to at least help someone who wasn't like, uh, like a writer or something, but just something like where you can absorb the mm -hmm. lesson, you can understand where it's coming from and then apply it, you know, a pop culture or apply yeah. something that will help you understand it. A lot of this really helped me in my special education for professional uh, mm. job where a lot of the students were nonverbal. It's a whole different yeah. ball game when you're working with students who are moderate to severe. Mm. So a lot of times it would be this creativity of like, okay, long story short, <laughs> the lesson plan may not be developed, but if the student is getting something from it, yep. let's do it. Oh, this guy has a knack for this. How do you adapt to what yes. you need to get across to the student? Those things always like <laughs> made me feel like, okay, I am learning something. But I remembered that as a form of like, oh, okay, I could do this. I'll try that way. Yeah. That was beautiful. I love that. That was beautiful. Yes. One of the most underutilized approaches to writing, and I learned this from my kiddos, is you can allow kids to talk through their ideas, which will then help them to be stronger writers in terms of the voice and the idea that they're really trying to come to. And some kids need more time, more conversation. Other kids can go straight to pen or straight to computer, but really it's about the ideas. So what are the ways in which you're going to get kids really familiar with their ideas, their voice, and the ways in which they are making sense of things so that they can feel confident when it comes time to write? And so you're speaking about all the pre-writing activities that are very, very important and critical, and they're, they can be creative, they can be fun, they can be ridiculous. But as long as the kiddos are getting their ideas and figuring out what is it that they want to say, then it is a learning experience. And so thank you for that hot tip, Norma, using yeah, your paraprofessional. Yeah. Listen, let them skills work and teach us some stuff. I will say it was just the class understood the skill that yeah. Chris had as a writer. And one of the projects that I just didn't turn in, honestly, was this project that you got up there and like you <gasps> gave this like story about what your life would become. And oh, yeah. you predestined me. Predestined Anyways, me. I remember Faith McClanahan, she did this phenomenal story of like just the pressures of being involved in like this drill team. It showcased how others of us in the classroom were able to just write and give what they could, you know, mm. in this piece of like, where would your life end up? after mm. you know high school and a lot of what like Krish and Faith were putting out were like it was scary because it was like mm. oh that's not what we want out of your life but okay I know we gotta move to lightning round 30 seconds or less Krish you, 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 you ready. ready making sure I'm recording we're good we're good <laughs> my check Let's one go. two <laughs> you're sounding great You're called to listen deeply to someone, but what they have to say is triggering. What's the first thing you do? Roll my eyes, of course. All right, Norma. Cough, take a breath. What's going on? Mm. <laughs> I 
Yes. Mm. Beautiful. What is one practice that keeps you grounded in the face of all this oppression and resistance, especially to the work that y'all are doing in the world? We'll start with you, Norma. My ancestors, those I've lost, those who came before the 520 plus years of resistance to conquest and mm. capitalism. Ooh, felt that in my spirit. Chris. Yes. My kids. I mean, mm. I mean, I can think I'm cool all I want, but my kids will say otherwise. So that keep, well, that's what keeps me grounded. I love it. <laughs> and just side note, the expressions on your baby girl's face when I see her on Instagram stuff. She is hilarious. She's got oh, you all thought, kinds you of thought I was talkative. You <laughs> should not see playing. her. <laughs> she is not playing. All right, we'll start with you this time, Rocky. What is one form of street data, qualitative street level data that every educator should gather? Well, just speaking on our conversation, just what the student's home life is like. I mean, working as an after school program leader, I see how little contact there is between the school and the parent in the home. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of that filters into the space. So I think just maybe not home visits like social worker style, but I mean, just kind of like an understanding of what the kid's going through. I think it would give a lot of context that a lot of teachers don't even want to get into at this point, you know? Norma, one piece of street data. It would be the environment, the neighborhood they grew up in. Mm. I was super like already there at Bow, I had been a student. I knew the students. There had been a shooter on campus. The the biology teacher, this little white woman from the East Coast, was scared and I said, "Everybody, get the fuck down and go up to the back." And like, I just knew what to do. I'm from the city, and then you know, even working with nonverbal students and the families, like, okay, where do you live? Where's your family mm -hmm. from? Oh, they're in the tenderloin. Got it. They're in the mm -hmm. baby. They get busted mm -hmm. over to you know, mm -hmm. no understanding the environment and, yes. and knowing the community. I think has always been an asset to me when I've been in, in the school. I just got to say footnote on this. Listeners, listen to your paraprofessionals. Center their expertise. They are fountains of knowledge. They are fountains of community wisdom and cultural wealth. Do not underestimate them and have them help you lead and solve some of the problems in your schools. Sorry. You better say that. PSA. PSA. Yes. <laughs> So what type of data do you feel is overused? And we're going to start with you, Chris. Grades. And like you, Norma, I was a C plus B student. Like now that I, I'm trying to get my kid on this 4.0 hype, I looked at my old transcript and I was like... <laughs> Mm -mm. I mm -mm. hope he never sees this. I hope he never, because I, yes, I want him to be 4.0. I will be that Asian mom that's on him. But then I realized I'm like, I was never that student. So, no. I, you know, and they were able to see past that. So I think the grades are, yeah, grades, grades really don't communicate, especially when the curriculum is not relevant to the student. It's I, let's just say I did, I had A's in all the classes that I liked and I had F's in the classes that I didn't like. That was the kind of student I was. Love it. Norma. I think it's the, honestly, the ivory tower colleges, the get into UC Berkeley, get into the mm -hmm. UC system, get into a private mm -hmm. college. But like, that doesn't mean that you're smarty pants or you know everything yep. about the world. There's all these tech bros. You know, they're, I'm working on their vehicle. You don't know yep. shit about your car, bro. Yep. Like, okay, I think <laughs> right. I'm going to make money off of that. But that's I mean, right. This, this idea that getting into this top prestige school, that's what's going to mm. set you and your family and man. 
man, I don't think that you you heard it here. Yes, forgive student debt. Thank you, Norma. Grades and elite colleges, not the right indicators. Mm-hmm. I love that. All right, last two lightning round questions. So this book argues to shift our focus away from standardized test scores and toward the cultivation of student agency. Student agency is defined as identity, belonging, mastery, and efficacy, the ability to make a difference in the world. What is an aspect of agency that you think is most needed today in the world that we are in right now? Well, obviously identity. I mean, isn't that what I've been grappling with this whole time (laughs) with these essays that I've been writing? And identity has a lot to do with what you're taught about your own people. If, If this is a place that you immigrated to, if this is a place that you're not originally from, which a lot of us were not. I mean, even the Black students were tired of hearing about slavery in the same way where it just took our agency. It took the histories as things that we could not change. And so once you start learning, and for me, ethnic studies was something that I got a little bit of taste of that really set me on my path because I had been given so much of otherwise. I had been given, oh, your people are poor. You're seeing yourself on these save the children ads. This is the only representation on television is these little kids with flies on their faces asking for 20 cents a day. There's no Filipinos that claim they're Filipino. They're Filipino, they're Hawaiian, they're Spanish, they're all these other things. There was nobody that was proud to be Filipino. And what does it even mean to be Filipino? What do we contribute to this neighborhood? What do we contribute to this city? What did we contribute to this country? My dad was in the Navy. I was a military kid. Why are we going to war? Why is my dad going to Saudi Arabia? How do I feel during 9-11? Who is to blame? Like all these You just dropped a whole curriculum right there. Yeah, I mean- That's like your new song and a curriculum. Listen, album number five coming out soon. There you go. Sponsored by Street Data. Shout out to my Norma's dancing, but you can't see. Norma is dancing. Get it, Norma. Get it. Oh my goodness. Love it. Listen, listen, there's so much out there. There's so much out there. I was given the gift of being able to put it into raps, put it into words. And once I really learned what my history was, the empowerment that came with that, the fact that I had so much more to be proud of than to be ashamed of, once I started doing the digging, then people find their agency once they realize that it's been a sham this whole time, everything that we've been taught as far as our own histories within this country. And so that gave me my sense of agency where I've been able to have a career for the past 15 years, helping people feel proud of being Filipino, helping people feel proud of being a woman in hip hop in such a misogynistic culture. And it wouldn't have come about if I hadn't been actually proud of my own identity through Mm. all of those trials and tribulations growing up in the city, in the Excelsior, and especially in such a male dominated field. So for me, identity is something Mm. that we still are learning, right, Norma? We're still learning about ourselves. Even, Even at 40, even though I'm not 40 yet, I turned 40 next week gosh, who are these babies first of all i don't believe y'all not that i'm calling y'all liars but there's no way y'all are only y'all are 40 like yeah got it y'all still look like you could be in high I just love both of you so much. And I'm so proud of each of you and the ways that you have grown and thrived and are influencing culture and are influencing your communities and are continuing to pay it forward, to teach, to educate, to help us all build a different kind of society. I love you guys. So thank you for coming and spending time with us this morning. Where can folks find out more about you or your work? Norma, you start. Well, I, you can find me on Instagram, Chicana Bolshevik. It's X 
S-I-C-A-N-A-B-O-L-S-H-E-V-I-K. Got it. And I work at Pat's Garage for a moment. You know, I, mm-hmm. I am trying to get into SFMPA. So if anyone knows SFMPA folks, let me know. Uh, my email, same ChicanaBolshevik at gmail.com. I have a website that has a lot of my music on there that you can buy directly because, you know, streaming don't give me no money. RockyRivera.com, R-O-C-K-Y-R-I-V-E-R-A. You can follow me on Instagram as well. I would give you my Twitter, but I don't know how long that's going to last. Girl. So right? Find me on Instagram. And I also have a Patreon if you want to support. We have yeah. a support tier, a solidarity tier, and an ally tier for folks that want to invest in a system that actually pays artists mm. instead of a percentage of a penny per spin that you're actually directly supporting a homegrown San Franciscan artist like me. So you can find all of that available on RockyRivera.com. And I am a fellow at the Ruby SF, which is an arts and letters focused co-working space oh, in yeah. the mission. And my my fellowship is up at the end of June, so I'm hoping to have my album complete by 2023. So then I will be extending the invite, Please possibly do. going to BC and visiting Shane if, if Shane is still yes! out there. I'll come find oh you, God. man. You know Please my shit be streaming too. June. I'll put any of y'all up. We have an extra bed here. Come hang out. For real. Yeah, I just so. want to say thank you for this conversation. Norma, you were talking about in the beginning needing to access healing. And I just want to note how much joy it was to watch y'all engage with Shane the laughter all of that is healing and so you're doing it you're healing and you're creating healing in the world both of you with your music and the ways in which you move and so I'm just super thankful to be a witness to this this healing I'm glad to have met you thank you for curating and Shane I agreed to do this because I love you 100% and Chris you as well like just what we experienced I just can't thank you both enough for allowing me to speak and I'm honored to be here so thank you both very much and yes I'd love to thank you all as well and especially you Norma because like Shane said if there was anybody that I wanted to be in convo with after 20 plus years it was you so I wanted to thank you also Alcine for bringing such levity and and being able to condense what we said and Shane for always reaching out and giving us homework years after high school (laughs) but it's the homework that I like which means it's connected to everything I'm doing anyway and I'm I love that our paths continue to cross and I hope that they continue to cross some more and this is a lifetime of work that we're all doing here so I'm happy to be in the shit with you all Street Data is executive produced and hosted by Shane Safir and Alcine Mumby. The senior producer is Maya Cueva, and our associate producer is Alice Lopez. Our production manager is Jamie Valle. Thank you to Zoe Morgan for social media support and Corwin Press for sponsoring us. And a special shout out to Rocky Rivera for our theme music. If you want to learn more about Street Data and get your hands on a copy of the book, visit Amazon, Corwin Press, or better yet, a local, independent, or Black-owned bookstore. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. And if you found us rambling or fumbling over our words, remember, we can't be articulate all of the time.